Well, I invite you to turn to the very beginning of your Bible, Genesis chapter 1. We're going to look at several passages in the opening chapters of the Bible, so we want you to have a Bible. These brothers have some. They're going to make their way to the back, and if you don't have a Bible, get their attention, and they'll give you one of those to follow along. When you lose your sense of direction, it can be very disorienting. This happened to my family and me several years ago when our girls were little and we took them to an apple orchard one fall. Now, at the time, the girls were being homeschooled, so we could set our own schedule. And each Monday, we'd do something together as a family. So we decided to go to the apple orchard, and there they had a maze cut into corn stalks in the middle of this farm. Now, one of the advantages to going to places on Mondays was you pretty much had the run of the place because very few people were there. One of the disadvantages was that often things were closed or they were not running at full capacity. Well, the orchard was open, but as we were walking to the entrance, we saw the corn maze in the distance, and we thought we'd like to go into it until we saw a sign next to the entrance that said, Maze Closed. Now, upon seeing that, a discussion ensued amongst the four of us about what the word closed really means in this context. I advocated for the interpretation that closed doesn't mean you can't go in. After all, the entrance was not blocked. I thought it was more of an advisory. It's saying it's not supervised, so you're on your own. So after much discussion, I convinced my family to enter the maze. Actually, Annie really didn't require any convincing. Kim and Laney were the holdouts. But we finally went in with some enthusiasm. We started walking the straightaways and making the turns while laughing and having an overall good time, which went on for maybe 20 to 25 minutes until the novelty had long worn off and we wanted to get out. That turned out not to be so easy. After wandering around for several more minutes, both Kim and I started to get a little concerned that we might never find the way out. I reached for my cell phone so that if we didn't emerge soon, I could call them. I could admit that my wife had talked me into getting into this maze (laughs) and ask for help. But as it turns out, my cell phone had no service in this particular location. And at right about that time, we heard the very clear sound of a farm tractor, which was loud enough that it had to be just outside the maze. So Kim and I both had visions of a huge combine plowing into the maze to tear it down. Now I'm thinking, maybe that's why it's closed. (laughs) We had no idea which direction to go, but we abandoned the paths in the maze altogether. We just started running through the corn, knowing that eventually we'd reach the end and emerge outside the maze. We did so, and happily we did so, not on the side where the combine was was operating. My family learned a couple of lessons that day. One, never listen to me about anything. And two, when you lose your sense of direction, it can be very disorienting, even frightening. If you're traveling... And you don't have a map or you don't have a GPS, you're going to have trouble reaching your destination if you reach it at all. And the truth is we live in a disoriented, confused society. 
Because people have rejected the map that God has given us to make our way through life. The Bible says this about itself. Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. Without a word from our creator, we lose a sense of any boundaries. And over time, that means that almost anything goes. That's why the Bible says in a famous verse in Proverbs, the King James Version says it this way. Maybe you've heard it this way. Where there is no vision, the people perish. But the NIV, which most of you have, says it this way. Where there is no revelation, people cast off restraint. King James says where there is no vision. NIV says where there is no revelation. And the reason is is because the vision that's being spoken of is a vision that God would give to his prophets, telling them his truth to then convey to his people. So it's revelation from God. It's something that God has made known that his people need to be aware of. Where there is no word from God, no vision from God, no revelation from God, then people cast off all restraint. Unless we know what the boundaries are and why we were created in the first place, then we'll find it easy to remove those boundaries with unknown consequences. G.K. Chesterton explained the importance of knowing why something exists before you try to change it. He explained that with his famous fence illustration. He said, say there is a fence or a gate erected across a road. The more modern type of reformer goes up to it and says, I don't see the use of this. Let's clear, clear it away. To which the more intelligent type of reformer will do well to answer, If you don't see the use of it, I certainly won't let you clear it away. Go away and think. Then when you can come back and tell me what you that you do see the use of it, I may allow you to destroy it. That is, he's saying things may need to be changed. But you don't know whether that's true until you first know why it's done as it is. And this loss of boundaries has led to disorientation in our society on many things, including the family. What comprises a family? What are the roles to be carried out within a family, if any? What does it mean to be a man, a woman, a child? And how are they to relate together? Now, next week, we're going to continue our series in the book of Ecclesiastes. But on this Father's Day... I want to take some time to review what God says about men and their God-given role. And men, the truth is, we have a tough time with this, but it's still good advice. When you're lost, ask for directions. And God, who has made us male and female, has left us a set of directions telling us why he did that and what he intends. So today, let's look to literally the owner's manual regarding what men were intended to be. And ladies, although we're going to focus on the men today, I urge you not to nod off. As we look at what God intended for men to be, ask yourself how you can help our men be what they were intended. Let's ask God to help us then. Father, thank you for gathering us now. Quieting our hearts, focusing our minds on your word. 
We pray in these next moments together that we will learn of you. And particularly, we men will learn of you. Be reminded of how you made us and how you made us to relate to our families and to play the roles that you've assigned to us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. And we have an outline for you for the message each week. It's on the back of your program, the very back. So I encourage you to take a look at that so that you can follow along. And I say, first of all there, that God made men to be partners. God made men to be partners. Now, by saying partners, I'm differentiating that from superiors. We're going to see that men have a role of authority to play, but that's not what we're told first in the Bible. Instead, in the very first chapter, we're told that men and women were created equal. Verse 27 of Genesis chapter 1. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Both male and female were made to reflect the character of God, to reflect his image. And therefore, before God, men and women are equal spiritually. Neither man nor woman possesses any spiritual superiority. In fact, The Bible is quite explicit about this spiritual equality elsewhere. It says in your New Testament, in the book of Galatians, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. There is not only no spiritual superiority between men and women, but I would add that there is no general intellectual superiority either. Although we men might be afraid to admit it, many of us have wives who are superior to us intellectually and in other ways as well. I know that in my own case, I am extremely overmarried. So men and women are created equal before God, equal in spiritual standing and spiritual ability, and often equal in other capacities as well. But after setting the foundation of equality in the very first chapter of the Bible, we'll see that in Genesis we're also given different roles to play. And based on this, the Bible will say years later in the New Testament, things like this. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. So on the one hand, we're equal before God. On the other, we have these different roles to play. And people sometimes mistakenly conclude that because women are to submit in the home and the church, it must mean some kind of inferiority. But we see that same dynamic of equality and submission in God himself. The one true and living God exists in the three persons of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And each is equally and fully God. And yet the Bible describes different roles for each. The Bible is clear, for example, that Jesus is God. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So whoever this Word is, the Word was God. And then a few verses later in that very same chapter, we're told the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son. So God the Son is fully God. But then this one who is fully God, even though equal to God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, God the Son said of himself, 
when he walked the earth. I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. So although Father, Son, and Spirit are equal in essence, that is in who they are, they differ in their function, that is in what they do. It would be heresy to say that because the Son submits to the Father, that means He's inferior to the Father or somehow less than God. And likewise, men and women are equal spiritual partners before God. They are the same in who they are before Him, with no superiority or inferiority, but they are different in the roles that God has assigned. So first of all, men, we need to be reminded that we were made to be partners, to be partners with one another, to be partners with our wives if we are married. We are equal in spiritual standing and who we are before God. But I say in your outline, secondly, we were made to be partners and God made men to be leaders. Partners, but also leaders. Now, have you ever noticed that when we speak of the first sin, we always call it Adam's sin? If you remember reading the account of that first sin, who did most of the talking? (laughs) It was the woman who was actually interacting with with the serpent, but we still call it Adam's sin. And in fact, the Bible says very explicitly, it's in Adam that all die. Well, why is this? Well, it's because God has made the man to lead and therefore he was responsible for what happened in his home. In fact, millennia later in the New Testament, in a passage that speaks of the roles that men and women are to play in the church, it bases that teaching on the order of creation. The fact that God made Adam first and placed him with responsibility. It says this, for because Adam was formed first, then Eve. So the fact that in these opening chapters of the Bible, God made the man first gave him this responsibility. That's an order that's to be instructive now for the remainder of human history. And in chapter two of this first book of the Bible, we get some details of the creation of the human race. In chapter one, we had a summary that humans, unlike animals, are created in God's image and both male and female are alike created in God's image. In chapter 2, we're given the differences between male and female. And the scene is, is this. God created the man first, and he gave him instructions regarding the paradise in which God had placed him. He told Adam to develop and guard the Garden of Eden and instructed him that he could freely and joyfully eat of all the bounty God had provided except one tree in the midst of the garden. If he steps outside God's instruction by violating that one prohibition, God told him, you will die. So we have God's gracious provision and man's moral responsibility before God. But amidst all of that stunning perfection in the Garden of Eden, God said, there's still something missing here. And of course, an omniscient God knew exactly what that was. Look at verse 18 of chapter 2. God says, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. God makes that objective declaration. It is not good for the man to be alone. I, God, have not made humanity to live in isolation. God makes that objective 
truthful declaration that it's not good for the man to be alone, but he wants Adam to subjectively sense his need as well. God, of course, knew that he didn't make humanity to live in this isolation, but he wants Adam to understand that also. So the Lord did not immediately create this helper. Verse 18, he says, here's the problem. And I'm going to make a helper suitable for him, but he doesn't do that immediately. He doesn't do that until we get to verse 23. In between verses 19 through 21, he actually does something else. He paraded the animals before the man for him to name them. Since the man did not yet see the problem, God translated the man's objective aloneness into a feeling of personal loneliness by setting Adam to the task of naming the animals. So God knows what he needs, but he wants him to know what he needs as well. And out of that exercise, it began to dawn on the man that there was no creature in the garden that shared his nature. He discovered not only his own unique superiority over the beasts, which the privilege of naming them in itself implied, but he also discovered his own solitude in this world. And now, after teaching Adam that lesson, that he needs other people around him, in verses 21 and 22, God undertakes to meet man's need. Verse 21. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. Ray Ortland, in a volume called Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, describes what happened this way. He says, imagine the scene. As the last of the beast plods off with its new name, the man turns away with a trace of perplexity and sorrow in his eyes. God says, son, I want you to lie down. Now close your eyes and sleep. The man falls into a deep slumber. The creator goes to work, opening the man's side, removing a rib, closing the wound, and building the woman. And there she stands perfectly gorgeous and uniquely suited to the man's need. And the Lord says to her, Daughter, I want you to go stand over there. I'll come for you in a moment. She obeys. Then God touches the man and says, Wake up now, son. I have one last creature for you to name. And I'd like to know what you think of this one. And God leads Eve out to Adam, who greets her, with rhapsodic relief. Notice what he says in verse 23. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. These are the first recorded human words. The first words that we have recorded ever spoken by a human being. And they express the joy of the first man in receiving the gift of that first woman. Adam says, this creature alone, Father, out of all the others, this one at last meets my need for a companion. She alone is my equal, my very flesh. I identify with her. I love her. I will call her woman, for she came out of man. And Adam perceives the woman not as his rival, but as his partner. Not as a threat because of her equality with him, 
but as the only one capable of fulfilling his longing within. And then there's that phrase, a helper suitable for him, that's used in verses 18 and in verse 20. And in that phrase, we encounter the paradox of manhood and womanhood. On the one one hand, the woman alone, out of all the creatures, was, quote, suitable for him. She alone was Adam's equal. A man may enjoy a form of companionship with a dog, but only on a dog's level. With a wife, a man finds companionship on his own level, for she is his equal. On the other side of that paradox, though, the woman, yes, is his equal, but she is his helper. The man was not created to help the woman, but the reverse. The man is to love his wife by accepting the primary responsibility for making their partnership a platform for displaying God's glory. And the woman is to love her husband by supporting him in that godly undertaking. So God has made male and female as equal before him. But it does not mean that there are no differences in our roles as we've seen. God created man and woman, male and female. And hear this. And there was no confusion about which was which. None. And that's become a serious matter for us today, has it not? Contrary to much that is said today, gender is not a social construct. Some of our young people who graduated, many of you are staying home, some are going away to school. You may well encounter this false notion that gender is just a social construct. The Bible does not teach that. God clearly And early on, at the very beginning of human history, connects biology to gender. The Bible teaches if you are biologically a boy, your gender is male and masculine. If you are biologically a girl, your gender is female and feminine. And God makes this distinction clear in the opening chapters of the Bible, where different words are used to describe male and female and man and woman... And these are connected to whether one is born physically a boy or a girl. It's almost as if the way God words it, as we read in Genesis 1.27, he created them in his image, male and female, he created them. He words it that way as if God somehow knew someday there would be some confusion about that. I want to make sure you know what my, the creator's, intention was. And then those same words are used in the opening books of your Bible to describe the activities of men and women. For example, the same word for male that's used in the first chapter of Genesis to describe men is used a few chapters later in chapter 17 to describe those who are to undergo circumcision. Now, it is true that the way gender, male and female, masculine and feminine, are distinguished at a given time time and place, that certainly has cultural expressions that can and do change over time. If you think about it, there was a time when men wore what today would we would identify as close to a dress. In biblical times, men wore robes. So what looks male and what looks female changes over time. But here's the important point. Until recent years, and at all times in human history, there was a difference in the external look of men and women. 
So much so that you go to a restroom, unless it's at Starbucks where they just made them all like unisex. But you go to a restroom and they've got the sign and it will say men or women. And then there's the symbol. Remember the symbol? And the symbol is like a, a guy with pants on and the, and the symbol for the woman has got like a skirt on. Why is that? Well, that's because it's always been that way. And why has it always been that way? Because God designed it that way. The concept of gender, male and female, being attached to biological differences between man and woman is thoroughly biblical. It's part of God's original design, and we abandon and confuse it to our personal and social peril. In a fallen world in which our bodies do not work as they were made, it should not surprise us that there will sometimes be confusion in an individual's feelings and their disposition which do not match their anatomy. That's part of the curse of a fallen world. And if you add to that that we are in a society that has abandoned the notion of objective truth that's found in God's word, then confused young people will continue to be given wrong and dangerous answers by the media, by their peers, and by their teachers. When we as Christian parents and friends and church members encounter that confusion, which we surely will and increasing numbers in the society in which we live. When we encounter that confusion, we should see it this way. Hear this. It is an issue to be addressed, not an alternative to be embraced. It's an issue to be lovingly and truthfully addressed, not an alternative to be embraced. So Ray Ortland summarizes the roles of male and female, men and women, as given in the Bible this way. In the partnership of two spiritually equal human beings, man and woman, the man bears the primary responsibility to lead the partnership in a God-glorifying way. God made men to be partners. Men, he made us to be leaders. And I say thirdly in your outline, sin makes men to be failures. God made us to be partners and to be leaders, but sin causes us to fail in those God-given responsibilities. Remember that God gave Adam instructions on the development of the garden, and then he gave the one restriction. Well, he gave those instructions to Adam before Eve was even created. And Adam apparently passed this on to his wife because she's aware of it when the serpent speaks to her in chapter 3. As you go to chapter 3, there's this dialogue between Satan, who's inhabited the serpent, and the woman. And then down in verse 6 of Genesis 3. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. Now, where is the man in this whole debacle that's going on? And I say that sin makes men to be failures because one of the ways it causes us to fail is, I say in the outline, is that we abdicate. It causes men to abdicate their responsibility. And I say that because there's a phrase at the end of verse 6 in chapter 3 that may go unnoticed if you're not careful. 
the end of verse 6 in Genesis 3, Eve gave some to her husband. Notice who was with her. And he ate it. So where was Adam? He's watching this go down. What's he supposed to be doing? Leading his family in a God-honoring way. But instead he has abdicated. Who's leading in this? Eve is. It's not because her husband wasn't around to speak up. In direct contradiction to his God-given responsibility to lead his family for God in a God-honoring direction, Adam is silent. And when God meets out then punishment for disobeying his command, this is what he says to Adam in verse 17. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. And then God goes on to give the consequences for the man. But Adam, you were supposed to lead, but instead of leading, you abdicated. You were passive. And men's sin causes us to fail in our responsibilities, in part by abdicating those responsibilities. And that continues to this day. Too many men abdicate. Men tend to escape into work into the garage, into their hobbies, their fantasies, the remote control, whatever your form of escape is. And all the while, your family is begging you to lead. Your children are in desperate need of your leadership. And I'm convinced that most of our wives are dying inside, just waiting for us to step to the plate And lead. Now, thankfully, our church is an exception to this. But if you look across the evangelical landscape at churches across our country, there have been all sorts of articles written about the feminization of the evangelical church. Did you know that? If you go into most churches, they are populated mostly by females. Where are the men? Now I look out here and I see a lot of brothers and a lot of men. Thank God for that. But man, we've got to take advantage now of having one another so that each of us now individually in our homes can do what God has called us to do. This problem of abdicating and being passive is so acute among men. I have a book on my shelf that's titled The Silence of Adam. And it takes the fact that Adam in that first drama in those opening chapters of the Bible, was silent when he needed to stand up and speak up and how that has affected men going forward. Sin causes men to abdicate their God-given role. But I say in your outline as well, it causes men to retaliate. When I say retaliate, I don't mean retaliate because the woman necessarily initiates the trouble and so then we retaliate against you know having this woman causing all this, these problems. But no, now we retaliate to anything that we don't find to our liking. And that flows from this very first sin and its consequences, which we still now, as men, deal with. After that first sin, after Adam had abdicated, 
He allowed his wife to take the lead. After that happened, God comes to him and he says, Adam, what have you, what have you done? And Adam immediately begins to retaliate. He begins to blame shift because he doesn't like what's happening. Verse 11 of chapter 3. The Lord asked Adam, have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, you know, what should the man have said? Yes, (laughs) I confess. Forgive me. No, the first two words out of his mouth are the woman. The woman you put here with me. I'm retaliating and blaming the woman and throwing her under the bus And by the way, I'm trying to throw the creator under the bus too because you're the one who gave her to me. You've only made one woman and apparently you made a bad one. So maybe you could start over. The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. What could I do? I was just an innocent bystander. Verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman... What is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So she's blame shifting as well. But then God says something else about this abdication. The abdication is this in this passivity and then retaliation in the form of blame shifting. But God says we're going to retaliate in another way as well as men. In verse 16 of chapter 3. God is talking to the woman. The consequences for you now is the woman because of this sin. Verse 16, I will make your pain, make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. And then God says this, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now that last phrase, your desire will be for your husband. And he will rule over you. That sounds like a good thing. But in the, con- the context of punishment, why would God say this good thing? Well, it's actually not a good thing. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And how do I know it's not a good thing? Here's how. The next chapter, in chapter 4, you have the very first, now following this first sin, now sin is going to cause all kinds of havoc in the human family. Adam and Eve have children, Cain and Abel. And the first human murder is recorded in the next chapter, in chapter 4. And after Cain has murdered his brother Abel, God comes to him. And if you'll take a look at that, take a look at chapter 4 and verse 7. God comes to him and he says at the end of verse 7, verse 7 of chapter 4, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now what's said there, sin desires to have you, but you must rule over it. It's the exact same phrase in Hebrew. As what God had said in chapter 3 and verse 16 to Eve. Your desire will be for your husband, but he's going to rule over you. So here's what it's saying. The desire of the woman is going to be now to run the man. Unless redeemed, unless regenerated, that's going to be the natural bent. But he is going to sinfully respond to that by dominating And sinfully ruling over you. It's going to be one of the consequences now for sin. That men will retaliate in the sinful way. And the result is that what God designed as a beautiful loving relationship of mutual respect. Becomes one of contention. And now men who are made to lovingly lead. Seek to instead sinfully dominate. 
And male domination rather than headship, loving leadership is a personal moral failure. It's not what the Bible teaches. In fact, far from it. The Bible says this in a famous passage in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy and present her to himself a radiant church, holy and blameless. And in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. But in direct contradiction to God's design, women will seek to rule their husbands and men will tend to respond by sinfully dominating rather than leading their wives in sacrificial love. It's impossible for me to know what goes on within the four walls of the homes represented in this room. But in a group this size, I can all but guarantee that there are men who mistreat their wives and children and sinfully seek to dominate them. Angry men who use their superior strength against vulnerable wives and children. One out of every four Christian couples experiences at least one episode of physical abuse in their marriages, some statistics say. Battering is the single largest cause of injury to women, more than auto accidents, muggings, and rapes combined. The American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists reports that three to four million women are beaten in their homes every year. According to the U.S. Department of Justice, approximately 2,000 women are murdered every year by an intimate partner. And one of the obvious ways in which God has made us different is physically. And men, we live with a woman who is weaker than we are. The Bible refers to her in 1 Peter 3 as the weaker partner. This means that she is also vulnerable. And to harm the vulnerable is directly contrary to the character of God. And it violates the sacred trust that we've been given in our leadership role. God cares for the vulnerable. And he lifts up the helpless and the weak. And that's why you find so much mention in the Bible of God's care for widows and orphans. Who were particularly vulnerable classes of people in biblical times. And God requires his people to do the same. In Isaiah 42, a prophecy, a prediction of the coming Messiah says this of him. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight, a bruised reed he will not break. He will not take something that's vulnerable and break it. And of course, this vulnerability applies to children if you have them as well. If they see you abusing verbally or and certainly physically, their mom and them, they're beginning to despise you and someday they will rise up against you. And when they hear what the Bible says, that God is our father, what will they think of? They'll think of that and they will chafe at the thought. God made men to be partners, to be leaders. Sin makes men to be failures. And last, God makes men to be winners. Because of sin, if we follow 
our sinful tendencies, we will fail in our God-given responsibilities. But God makes us to be winners. We were made, guys, to be, in military parlance, the point man. During a military patrol or an infantry operation, the point man walks several meters out in front of everyone else. And he's likely to be the first one to encounter enemy soldiers. It's a hazardous position that requires alertness and ability to deal with unexpected attacks. His purpose is to serve as the eyes and the ears for the unit that's following him through suspected enemy territory. He seeks out likely enemy ambush sites, booby traps, and anything else that would endanger and trap his tailing companions. That's what God has called us to do, men. Is to lead. Look for danger. Eliminate that danger from our homes, from our own lives. So listen, fellows. You do not have to drift without knowing how to play your role. You don't have to escape because you're afraid to play your role. You need to be with other men who can support one another in their God-given tasks. This is what the church is all about. And so I'm telling you, men, that God has the solution to this problem and this tendency that we all have since the very first man in Adam. And he has given his church and his people to help. Men, we're here to help you. I thank God for the ministry of Pastor Rich in our robust men's ministry. Many of you men, that's one of the reasons we have so many men here. Thank God. But if you're not availing yourself of those opportunities, then you must avail yourself of that. In the fall, we're going to have Saturday monthly meetings called Leadership Institute that Pastor Rich will be leading. Some of our guys are meeting in the summer, midweek. If you want to know more about that, ask at the Information Center. We have books. We have videos. We have counseling. We have community groups that meet on Sunday nights so that you can be in intimate relationship with other men. We will place you in one-on-one discipleship with another man. You simply let us know you want to do that, again, at the information center. So, man, God has given us a role to play. He's made us to be partners, made us to be leaders. But sin makes us to be failures. But God makes us to be winners again. I say in your take-home truth, Christ restores men to what they were made to be. And that begins with a relationship with Jesus. If you do not have a relationship with Christ, you stand no chance of being the man that God made you to be. So it begins there. And it begins with you realizing you're a sinner. And you recognizing that Christ died to pay the penalty for your sin. You repent of your sin. You say, Lord, I'm going to go your way, not my way. That's what repent means. And you receive Jesus Christ into your life. We're going to bow and pray in just a moment. When we do, maybe you know Jesus, but you see some of these tendencies in your life, men. Repent of that. Confess that to the Lord. And make a determination to avail yourself of the gifts that he's provided to you to move in a different direction through his church. But if you've never received Christ, you say in your own words from your heart to God as we bow in just a moment, Lord, I recognize my sin. I recognize it in so many ways. I see it as a man. I see it as a woman, as a child. And I believe Jesus is the only solution to that. He died to pay the penalty for my sin. I ask you to forgive me. I give my life to you. I'm going to follow you and go your way, not my way. Let's bow together. Father, thank you for answering our prayer, to instruct us, to meet with us, 
Thank you, Lord, for giving us your word, your timely word in 2017, though it was written thousands of years ago. It's timely because it was written by an omniscient, all-knowing God who knows exactly what we needed. So thank you for telling us what we men are to be and what we're to do. Thank you for giving us your word, the roadmap to life, which is to guide us. Lord, I pray for my brothers, especially on this Father's Day, that they will avail themselves of the precious gift of your word, of your spirit, and of your people in your church, so that we can wage the battle that Satan is fighting against all who would live godly in Christ Jesus, so that they will have the full armor of God in order to wage this battle successfully and not be failures, not fail to live up to what you've made us to be, but to please you in being the men that you designed us to be. As a result, give us godly and strong homes. And as a result, give us a godly and strong church that is a light in a darkened world. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.